0: here this evening, as we continue on in our study of 2 Kings. So we're in chapter 24, uh, working our way through it. And then there's only one more chapter. And I will say, everything is starting to consolidate. Uh, Starting to consolidate with the uh, idea of Judah being taken into captivity. I know once before, when I was thinking of God's sovereignty, I thought of dominoes and how we have to put these all together, but God, when he does dominoes, he's able to do all of these. I was thinking today, you ever see those people uh, shoot, pool and do trick shots? Uh, I've seen one where they do six balls, and they just shoot the cue ball one time, and it goes in there, and all of them go into a pocket. And that's pretty good. I mean, you have to practice to do that. But God does it the other way. God's sovereignty takes the balls out of the pocket and gathers them together. And there's more than six pockets with God. It's an infinite number of pockets. The reason I say that is because there are so many things converging this evening, and it's... it's going to be very, very interesting. I'm I'm excited. When when it converges together, we're going to be looking at Daniel. We're going to be looking at Jeremiah. Um, All of this is converging together, and and it's uh, coming even to a closer point by the time it goes to Babylonian captivity. Well, before we begin, let's just have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, as we come before you, thank you You have given us the scriptures not only how we should live but how we should view you completely sovereign sovereign to bring about your will even if it's to make us more like christ and it's using trials father even heavenly discipline but lord thank you also that we'll see your grace at the very end of this these people whom you are punishing are indeed your people These people whom you are punishing, you have fantastic news for them in the new covenant. Would you teach us tonight, Lord? Would you help us to understand all that's truly going on? And may you put it to our lives and our hearts, and we'll thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so we've entitled this Jehoiachin. We're moving our way through the king's. After this king, there's only one more king, and it's Jehoiachin and the deportations. I want to talk about the deportations. Uh, I mentioned them last week. I mentioned that there were three of them. We're going to look at them in a little more detail. Uh, Let's just go back and look at the chronology of these last few kings. Well, if you notice on the right-hand side, that's where the northern kingdom was taken and put into captivity in 722 by the Assyrians. But the southern kingdom kept going on. And the Babylonians started to rise up in power and the Assyrians went down. Now, I have a name there in red because that's Manasseh. That's the one that has been mentioned four times in the book of Kings or three times and once in Jeremiah that he was the straw that broke the camel's back. And this is when God said, I had enough. We come to the yellow, and these are the last five kings. And of course, Josiah was a breath of fresh air. I'm so glad there were several chapters about him, and we had a number of sermons, and I wanted to just stay there, talk more about Josiah. But we see that it's the last five kings, and um, three of them are his sons, and one of them is the son of a previous king. So we have Josiah, we have Jehoahaz, the son of Josiah, Jehoiakim, and we talked about him last week, son of Josiah. And now we're going to talk about Jehoiachin, the son of Jehoiakim. And I hope I can keep all of these straight. And then finally... Zedekiah, whose name is changed to Zedekiah. Uh, he is also the son of Josiah. So we are working our way through this. But there's another way to look at this, and I'd like to do this this evening. I mentioned that when Judah is taken into Bab- Babylonian captivity, it actually happened in three separate events. And again, the idea is is Oh, if they would have just realized it, the first deportation, and they would have turned to God, there would have been a reprieve. reprieve. But there were not. And it's not just one deportation, and it's not just two, but there are three. So I have these interworked with the kings. So we have Josiah, Jehoahaz, and then Jehoiakim, and that's when the first one takes place, and it also involves Daniel. We'll look at that. Then Jehoiachin, who we'll look at tonight, um, we'll see at the end of this the second deportation. And I want to mention something about this. By this time, the second deportation, each one by Nebuchadnezzar, by now they've taken the best of the best. They've taken a lot of the valuable gold and treasures. Now, they're going to have some on the third deportation, but they've got the most valuable stuff and the people. So it's not just the treasures, but they've taken the people, and they take the best people first so they can further Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom. And There is going to be the ideas. is there even going to be necessary to have a third deportation yes it is because there still will be some people there there still will be some treasure and jerusalem will be destroyed so and all of this was prophesied but i'm going to keep this up here because we're going to go through that now quickly let me just do a little review so we know that josiah the great king he was killed by Pharaoh Nico. And his son Jehoahaz became king, and he was only king for three months. So he did evil before the Lord and was only there for three months. Well, Nico, still involved, he's the, the Pharaoh from Egypt, he got a hold of Jehoahaz and imprisoned him, and he died in prison. Well, Nico made Jehoiakim, the king. And Jehoiakim was also a son of Josiah and probably in cahoots with Necho. He certainly gave him gold and he gave him silver. Then it says that he did evil before the Lord. Jehoiakim submitted at first to Necho, but then rebelled, Uh, I'm sorry, he first uh, submitted to Nebuchadnezzar and then rebelled against Nebuchadnezzar. And that's bad news. And even in the book of Jeremiah, it's an odd thing. In the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah, the, the, the prophet of the Lord, the Lord was speaking to the people and, and, not, uh, and not really giving them advice to rebel against Nebuchadnezzar. Even though he was going to be the one to bring in their destruction, they were not really to fight against him, but they did. And of course, this was all a part of God's will, um, how Nebuchadnezzar was taking out one nation after another. It says that the Lord sent many nations against Judah to punish Judah. And then finally, we, we closed it last week with looking at some of the acts, the final acts, events of Jehoiakim. Um, let's take a look then at these uh, three deportations. Uh, we have them here at the chart and we've kind of gone through them. And um, I, I have the year that they were king, they reigned, and then the year of these deportations. But let's look at them in detail. So notice where the first one is Judah's deportation. I have it on your notes as Nebuchadnezzar's first deportation. He was the agent of deportation. And Judah was the victim of deportation. Now, notice it's under Jehoiakim. And that's when this happened. So before we finish the transition of Jehoiakim, We want to look at Daniel. Would you turn in your Bibles to Daniel chapter 1? And we're going to look at verses 1 through 7. All right, so... Uh, All we've known at this point was that Pharaoh Necho made Eliakim, the son of Josiah, king in his place and changed his name to Jehoiakim. So that's how he became the king. It's interesting that Daniel begins his writing. It says, in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar king of Babylon came to Jerusalem and besieged it. So this is the first time. In, and, uh, you know, sometimes you would scratch your head and say, well, is, is it the first one or is he repeating what happened? But you can put the scriptures together in chronological order and you can see, no, there was indeed three. Now, uh, Look look at verse 2 of Daniel chapter 1. This is very interesting. It says the Lord gave Jehoiakim king of Judah into his hand. So usually when you're reading scripture and they pray to the Lord, the Lord gives the enemy into the hand of God's people. Here he's giving God's people into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar and This is why in Jeremiah it's so odd because he's not telling them to rebel against Nebuchadnezzar. You don't want to rebel against him. So we see an intervention here. The Lord is intervening. And and that's what we saw last time. When all of those nations came against Judah, this is the Lord bringing this discipline. And now it's winding down to the final disciplines, if you will. Someone wrote, Nebuchadnezzar had sent troops against Jerusalem late in Jehoiakim's reign because the Judean king continued to resist Babylonian control and to look to Egypt for help in throwing off the Babylonian yoke. So these kings were taking as much land as they can and taking control of these areas. Now, if they were going to take control of these areas, they had to make them subservient. They had to... Uh, cause them to give them um, taxes, if you want to call them, or tribute, as the Bible calls it. And at some point, they get tired of it. When they get tired of it, Nebuchadnezzar comes in and teaches them a lesson, although this is a very big lesson. And so what we see here, let's read on. This is in verse 2 of Daniel chapter 1. The Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. That's Nebuchadnezzar's hand. Along with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shiner, to the house of his God. And he brought the vessels into the treasury of his God. Now, I want to stop there because that's, you know, that's the kind of thing that provokes the Lord. And... Uh, So these nations, when they defeat another nation, they believe they've defeated that God and their God is the strongest God that there is. Well, let's read on. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, the chief of his officials, to bring in some of the sons of Israel, including some of the royal family and of the nobles. Verse four, also youths, in whom was no defect, who were good-looking, showing intelligence in every branch of wisdom, endowed with understanding and discerning knowledge, and who had ability for serving in the king's court. And he ordered him to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. And so he's doing this to help his own kingdom. And, of course, if someone was not submissive to him and rebellious, well, there were all kinds of forms and ways to make them submit. Same thing's going to happen with the soldiers. We conquered you. You have two choices. You either fight with us or we will fight against you right now here in our own land. So guess who one of these youths was? Daniel. And we're going to see that in just a moment. So this is how Daniel gets over to Babylon. And it's at the time of Jehoiakim. It's at the time of Nebuchadnezzar. You see all of these things now converging together. And Nebuchadnezzar comes to teach Jehoiakim a lesson, takes many of the treasuries, many of the gold, much of the gold. And he takes quite a few people, but it's the best of the best. It's the royal family. Uh, and it's the nobles it's the youths who are who are intelligent and can learn the language and can be very very helpful and then drop down to let's look at verse 5 the king appointed for them a daily ration from the king's choice food and from the wine which he drank which to, to Nebuchadnezzar was a good thing to Daniel and his Uh, fellow brothers uh, in the Lord, that wasn't a good thing. But it says, and appointed that they should be educated three years at the end of which they were to enter the king's personal service. Now among them from the sons of Judah were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Those are their Jewish names; their Hebrew names, but it says then the commander of the officials assigned new names to them, and to Daniel he assigned the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah Shadrach, and to Mishael Meshach, and to Azariah Abednego, and 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 that is really how we uh, kind of. Um, Get ourselves familiar with their Babylonian names. Well, that's how this converges together. Jehoiakim, Nebuchadnezzar come in and, and uh, besiege Jerusalem and Judah, and they take a whole bunch of people, and Daniel is one of them. Now, I want to uh, I want to mention something here. Let's let's while we're looking at Daniel. <laughs> Look at verse 2 and following again. So the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them into the land of Shinar, to the house of his God. And he brought the vessels into the treasury of his God. Now, there's something special about this treasury. In Daniel chapter 5, one of the kings goes into the house of the God, grabs these vessels, puts wine in them, and they get drunk to them. And then comes the writing on the wall. Turn with me, if you would, to Daniel chapter 5. So let's uh, begin here, Daniel chapter 5. We'll go back to uh, verse 1. Now it says, Belshazzar, not Belteshazzar, that's Daniel. This is Belshazzar. The king held a great feast for a thousand of his nobles, and he was drinking wine in the presence of the thousand. When Belshazzar tasted the wine, he gave orders to bring the gold and silver vessels which Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple, which was in Jerusalem, so that the kings and his nobles, his wives, and his concubines might drink from them. Now, it, it might have been on the second deportation, but again, the whole idea of what we've seen Nebuchadnezzar is bring the best things first, the most valuable things first, and bring the best people first. I think he's thinking he will come back again if there is a rebellion, and in fact, he does. And he takes more valuables, but you get the idea it's what's left of the valuables. And then the third time, he does take some things, but they're not as valuable as the first two or even the first one. So we're looking at these vessels here, and they're drinking out of them. And again, verse 3, then they brought the gold vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God, which was in Jerusalem, and the kings and his nobles and his wives and concubines drank from them. Verse 4 They drank the wine and praised the gods of God, gold and silver, of bronze, of iron, wood, and stone. Suddenly, the fingers of a man emerged and began writing opposite the lampstand on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace. And the king saw the back of the hand that did the writing. The king's face grew pale as his thoughts alarmed him and his hip joints were slack and his knees began, I like the one version that says, smote together Knocking together. That's pretty scared. Your knees are knocking together. That's pretty scared. Well, they go through it, and you, we go down to verse 25. And this is after, uh, of course, at some point they bring in Daniel. Daniel, can you interpret it? And it says, um, the inscription, verse 25, was written out, uh, Meenie, meenie, tekel you farsin. This is the interpretation of the message. Mini means God has numbered your kingdom and put an end to it. By the way, that was said twice, so it's emphatic. Tekel, you have been weighed on the scales and found deficient. And then you farsen or Paris, Your kingdom has been divided and given over to the Medes and the Persians. So anyway... uh, the, what's interesting about it is where did these vessels come from? From the Jerusalem temple. And this was one of these deportations and most likely was the first deportation. So this happened in 605 BC. The final one is going to be 586. So we're winnowing our way down. And in this text uh, that we have for us tonight we're going to see deportation number two, which is going to happen in 597. So it's converging. All right. So let's now go back to 2 Kings. We go back to 2 Kings chapter 24. We're going to pick it up in verse 6. So the first deportation happened in the third year of Jehoiakim. Well, he was in there for several years. And now verse six, so Jehoiakim slept with his fathers, and Jehoiachin, his son, became king in his place. So he's not the son of Josiah, but the others who are the last kings, they are also, uh, they are the sons of Josiah. What is interesting, and we're going to have to take another week and talk about this, but Jehoiachin is also called Jeconiah. And there's a curse involved with Jeconiah, and he's also called Kaniah. So in Jeremiah 24, he's called Jeconiah, and in Jeremiah 22, he's called Kaniah. Um, so these are some of the uh, the different names for this one person. But What happened? And by the way, he was only in there for three months. He was only in there for three months. Now, before we start getting zoomed in on Jehoiachin, there's an interesting verse, and you would almost think it's just out of place. Look at verse 7. It says, The king of Egypt, that's Pharaoh Necho, did not come out of his land again. For the king of Babylon had taken all that belonged to the king of Egypt from the brook of Egypt to the river Euphrates. So now Babylon is really becoming the full power. They, they weren't able to, to go into Egypt and take over Egypt, but all that Egypt had um, by way of moving up past Judah and, and, and up higher to Carchemish that all is, is Nebuchadnezzar's now. So really, Judah is now Nebuchadnezzar's. Someone said, in 601 BC, Nebuchadnezzar again marched west against Egypt and was turned back by strong Egyptian resistance. However, Egypt, though able to defend its land, was not able to be aggressive and recover its conquered lands or provide any help for its allies, including Judah. And hence the phrase, "Nico did not come out of his land anymore. Well, let's look now at verse 8. And we do have a little, we have a little uh, conundrum that we have to settle. Verse 8 of Second Kings chapter 24 reads, Jehoiachin was 18 years old when he became king and he reigned 3 months in Jerusalem and his mother's name was Nehushta, the daughter of Elnathan of Jerusalem now what's the problem here well the problem is is if we turn over to 2 Chronicles chapter 36 verse 9 it says Jehoiachin was 8 years old when he became king and he reigned three months and 10 days in Jerusalem, and he did evil in the sight of the Lord. Now, it's not a problem with him being eight years old and being a king. Josiah was eight years old when he became a king. The problem is is that the one has one age and another has a different one. Now, sometimes we have been able to settle this by looking at, okay, there was a joint uh, reign of the son with the father for a certain time. And then goes into a soul reign. And so sometimes we have to look at, are they combining both of those or is there just one? But here we're talking about the age, not how long they reigned. So it is kind of an issue. Um, and it it, it is perhaps one of the unfortunate scribal errors, not the author's error, who was under the inspiration of scripture, but the copiers. We don't have many of those. You don't have to fear like your faith is is in jeopardy. It's not. There are very few scribal errors. There are very few of those. And because there's so many um, uh, copies of both the Old and the New Testament, they are able to determine which are the right ones sometimes. But we are still left with this. And, and uh, you know, maybe there is another explanation other than this, but most, most men will will say, okay, they're going to pick one or the other. And, and to be honest with you, most men, most scholars, commentaries, pick the 18 years of age. And here's why. Because... He's only in there for three months, and it's going to say he's going to be taken into captivity by Nebuchadnezzar, him and his wives. All right, well, that would pretty much substantiate that he was at least 18. Another writes that um, Jehoiachin did evil in the sight of the Lord, so much evil that he was removed In three months. Now, it's not impossible for an eight-year-old to be that evil, I I suppose. But most likely, it's when you know, (laughs) you know, who are you betting on—the eight-year-old or the eighteen-year-old? You know, and is—is it? Haven't you heard that advice? Oh, you just wait till they get into their teens. So there is something to that. So most commentaries uh, will will um, support the idea that he was eighteen. And most likely, it was a scribal error—not the original, but the copy of the copy of the copy by the copier. Okay. And again, there are there are a few possibilities, but there are very few. We actually have one in the New Testament, but almost every every uh, translation has a margin note and says, "No, they believe that this was added in anyway." We'll take a look at that some other time. Well, verse 9 tells us a lot. He did evil in the sight of the Lord according to all that his father had done. So he was 18 years old, and in three months, this is this is his report. I mean, it's almost like you can't even get going in three months. And already they are saying that he, he did evil in the sight of the Lord. He followed his father... And we're told uh, that his father had committed abominations. Now, we've looked at abominations, and they could be various things, including murder, including taxing his own people and not paying wages. But the biggest abomination in the book of Kings always uh, boils down to idolatry. And so this is what we would just assume with that phrase that it is idolatry. All right, so with this, we now move into the second deportation. So some time had gone by. Uh, some eight years had gone by because Jehoiakim, uh, he, his reign lasted uh, quite a bit. So let's look at 2 Kings chapter 24, verse 10. At that time, the servants of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, went up to Jerusalem and the city came under siege. So we can just imagine that like father, like son, he wasn't going to help or pay or submit to Nebuchadnezzar. And that was a mistake, although it was in God's sovereign plan. So we believe that he followed the sentiments of his father, Jehoiakim. And then it tells us in verse 11 that he himself came. Now, maybe this was the original plan that he was going to come. You go first, uh, secure the area, and then I'll come. That kind of makes sense. And and why would he come? Well, we do see the kings go, but you have to be careful. Remember what happened to Josiah? (laughs) You have to be careful. You definitely don't disguise yourself, okay? That just doesn't work with the sovereign God. But I suspect that he wanted to see more of the treasures and get more of the treasures, the ones that were left. Um, there, it may have been the vessels that we just talked about with, with uh, uh, Belshazzar, but it seemed to me that, that might, they might have been taken on the first round, and so now he's taking more stuff. We're going we're gonna to see that he does that. Um. So, verse 11, and Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, came to the city while his servants were besieging it. Now, here's where Jehoiakim, I suppose, on the one hand, uses wisdom, or you could say, here's where he acts, acts like an eight year old. Jehoiakim, verse 12, Jehoiachin. The king of Judah went out to the king of Babylon, he and his mother and his servants and his captains and his officials. So the king of Babylon took him captive in the eighth year of his reign. That eighth year is the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, not Jehoiachin, who's only been in there for three months. So when he arrived in 597, you know, it was only three months ago. And he, he also knew of the siege that happened eight years earlier. He surrendered. And that, that was wise because it would have cost him his life. And then uh, notice that the king was taken. The king's mother was taken. Their royal servants, captains, and officials. So these also were taken. So they're, they're the, the best of the best. And these aren't all the ones that are going to be taken. They're the best of the best. And uh, the, the royal ones and the servants and, and the captains, you know, they're going to have to be sorted through. Are you going to serve Nebuchadnezzar like you served Jehoiachin and Jehoiakim? That kind of a thing. Uh, if they detect any rebellion at all, they will indeed probably kill them. And and we have seen where some kings have just killed them automatically so that there's no secret uprising in the future. Well, at verse 13 then, it says, And he carried out from there all the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king's house and cut in pieces all the vessels of gold which Solomon, king of Israel, had made in the temple of the Lord, just as the Lord had said. So as we're looking at that, I'm trying to read between the lines there, the treasures that he took out. And it said he he, uh, cut in pieces some of the vessels of gold. Well, those wouldn't be the cups. So most likely the cups and those things, the very, very valuable things, already went. And now he's taking the rest of it. But he is still taking more out of king solomon's home but also the temple that was made so he they're just stripping the temple and then notice if you will it says just as the lord had said when did the lord ever say that gold was going to be taken out of the temple and given to the king of babylon well, it would probably be an easier statement to say, "When did he say it?" And again, this theme of God—you know, God—there's no should be no surprise to them. God has said it over and over. We see it. We see it said in Second Kings chapter twenty, verse seventeen. I'm going to have you turn there for effect, for sure, for the dramatic effect of it. Look. Um, In 2 Kings chapter 20, just a few chapters earlier, the Lord says, behold, the days are coming. And by the way, when he says that, that's a prophecy, a prophecy of future. And some of those are distant future, but not this one. Oh, I suppose it was a distant future back in chapter 20, but it's not anymore. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and all that your fathers have laid up in store to this day will be carried to Babylon, nothing shall be left, says the Lord. Now at this point, we're, we're looking at it and saying, well, there's one more deportation, right? Right. But again, he's taking the best and you almost could in a figure of speech saying, yeah, he's taking it all. Okay. He's going to come back for some bronze pillars that they're going to have to cut up and they're going to have to do some of that. But he's got the goal. In Jeremiah chapter 20, you don't have to turn there. Chapter 20, verse 5. This is Jeremiah telling these kings these things. It says, I will also give over all the wealth of this city, all its produce and all its costly things, Even all the treasures of the kings of Judah I will give over to the hand of their enemy, and they will plunder them, take them away, and bring them to Babylon. And the same thing in Isaiah 39. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and all that your fathers have laid up in store, and and that would be also in the house of the Lord, to this day will be carried to Babylon. Nothing will be left, says the Lord. When was it ever said? When wasn't it said? When wasn't it said by these prophets, by Isaiah, by Jeremiah? And so, again, you know, it's amazing that we see them sin in idolatry in the first place. But it's just as amazing to see all of these things are coming to fruition. All of these warnings, all of these punishments are happening. And yet still, it still doesn't work for them. They don't, they don't learn. Let's move to verse 14. And in verse 14, it says, Then he led away into exile all Jerusalem and all the captains and all the mighty men of valor, 10,000 captives and all the craftsmen and the smiths. none remained except the poorest people of the land. Again, when you read that, you would almost say to yourself, well, maybe you have it mixed up. This is the last one. It's not. It's not the last one because you don't have to turn there, but if you would turn to 2 Kings, same book we're in, chapter 25, verse 8, it says, Now on the seventh day of the fifth month, which was the 19th year of King Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, a servant of the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem. He burned the house of the Lord, the king's house, and all the houses of Jerusalem, even every great house he burned with fire. So all the army of the Chaldeans who were with the captain of the guard broke down the walls around Jerusalem. And if you keep reading on that account, they did take things out of there. So, and they also took the rest of the captives. But again, notice here. I, I think the, the verbiage is they, they virtually took them all. Or they virtually took in, into captivity anyone who was anyone. They took the captains. They took the mighty men of valor, the warriors, the soldiers. They took 10,000 captives. And they took all the craftsmen and the smiths. And the idea is is that, yeah, hey, you know what? Keep them coming. Keep building up Babylon. You know what? Make it beautiful. Let's use your your gifts and your talents here. And by the way, you can fight for us now. And so we will be the number one power. It said none remained the Poorest people of the land, so I have to be—I have to be honest with you. When I went over to Israel and we were studying the Book of Jeremiah, but we had not gotten this far, the the, the guide talked about that—that that there were people still in Jerusalem after the captivity, and I asked, "How? How is that possible? They took them—they took them all in the captivity. They did not take them all in the captivity. There were some they don't want." They don't, they didn't want, they didn't want the poorest. Now, when they come back a third time, they're going to take more people, but again, they're going to leave people. You know, uh, you know, are are you, are you on Medicare? Are you on welfare? Okay, you get to stay in Jerusalem where there is nothing. You know, it's not like businesses are still going to be going on. I mean, barely going to survive. Anyway, you see how this is all converging together and, you see how they're taking the, the best of the best except for the poorest? By the way, same thing is going to be said in 2 Kings 25. That's how we know there is another deportation, a poor deportation, if you will. And then we come to, we come to verses 15 and 16. And by the way, uh, th- this second deportation is corroborated by 2 Chronicles and by Jeremiah chapter 24, uh, and Jeremiah chapter 29. Um, Let me just look here. Uh, Jeremiah is is told to write a letter. In fact, go ahead, turn to Jeremiah 29. Again, these things are just coming together, and they're so cool. So so here's Jeremiah. so, So now twice deportations, twice all the valuables, almost all the valuables, almost all the people all the people, you know, in, in the who's who. And it says this. Now, these are the words of the letter which Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem. So he's still living in Jerusalem to the rest of the elders of the exile, the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken end in exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. It's not all of them. Um, the, Jeremiah is, you're going to read a third deportation in Jeremiah. And here, look at verse 2. This was after King Jeconiah and the queen mother, the court officials, the princes of Judah, and Jerusalem, the craftsmen, and the smiths had departed from Jerusalem. So here's this prophet who's going to read them a letter and I'm going to give you a little spoiler alert. We're going to look at this in detail for an application. What do you think that letter says? This is from the word of the Lord, and I told you so, and you're done completely. Nope. It is the most gracious thing, and we're going to take a look. It's the most gracious thing. He will talk to them how the Lord will not destroy them completely. But the other nations, yes, but not his people completely. And he's going to talk about a time when he's going to bring them back. In fact, he's going to talk about a time when he's going to bring them back in 70 years. And then he's going to talk about a future time called Jacob's distress. The tribulation in the same, same context. He says, I'm going to save you and deliver you. And then he's going to talk about the new covenant. Which is all about the millennial kingdom. All in this section. After they've been taken into captivity, the second deportation. Is that a gracious God or what? Does he not love his people to the end? Oh, there may be chastisement, but he loves them to the end. Anyway, that's the spoiler alert. But that's what this letter was about. That's exactly what this letter was about. Now, look at verses 15 and 16. He's going to kind of repeat this. And, you know, I was thinking about this. He's going to repeat it. There's going to be a little bit more detail. And, and, and you go to your, you say to yourself, why, why is he repeating it? You know, did, didn't he know how to write? And, and and the answer is, oh, oh, no, he knew how to write. This is what they call dramatic conclusion. You know how it's happening, and it happens, and then at the very end, even though you know it happened, it's like the concluding mark, and they took with them all of these people into captivity. And this is how many there was. I mean, it, you know, it, it's gripping us, and it should have gripped them. Verse 15, so he led Jehoiachin away. Into exile to Babylon. Also the king's mother, and here we go, and the king's wives. This is where it mentions the wives, and his officials, and the leading men of the land. And he led away into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Verse 16: All the mighty men of valor, 7,000, these are the warriors, the soldiers who are now going to fight for Nebuchadnezzar or die from Nebuchadnezzar, and the craftsmen and the smiths, 1,000, all strong and fit for war. And these, the king of Babylon, brought into exile to Babylon. And we'll stop there. We'll stop there. Notice, if you would, where he talks about the craftsmen and the smiths, he says, 1,000 all strong and fit for war. So it's very possible that he would utilize these men for war. It's very possible that he would have them make things, shields, knives with elk antler handles for battle, you know? And so you would bring those craftsmen all along, um, the smiths. <laughs> anyway, um, So, I mean, you know, Judah just became a gift from God to King Nebuchadnezzar. But it's because Judah did not follow the Lord. Now, that's twice. You know, once, twice, three strikes are out, there's a third strike coming. You would think, you would think that they would do whatever they had to do to turn back to the Lord, to have a reprieve. And the, the, the prophecy is that it's going to happen. The prophecy is not necessarily when it's going to happen. It's going It ha- was going to happen when Josiah was there, but because Josiah was a good king, he had peace. Well, they could have peace too, but they did not have any of it. So now, as promised, I want to look at a couple of things so if we're looking at jeremiah about the same time we see a number of prophecies most of them are in captivity not all the rest of them will go in the third but at this point he is reaching out to his people through jeremiah and the first one is to tell him to tell them You're only going to be here for 70 years. Turn with me, if you would, to Jeremiah chapter 29. So this is where we are, chapter 29. We're not in the third deportation yet. Jeremiah chapter 29, verses 4 through 7. He begins with this. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent to I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. build houses, live in them, plant gardens, eat the produce, take wives, become the fathers of sons and daughters, and take wives for your sons and give your daughters to husbands that they may bear sons and daughters and multiply there and do Uh, multiply there and do not decrease. Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will have welfare. What is God thinking? He's thinking in 70 years, they're going back and they will have plenty. Thanks to Nebuchadnezzar, they will have plenty. Um, I, I think of, you know, sometimes we look at the Jewish people that no matter where they were, they, uh, even though there was punishment, they, they did prosper. Um, I think this is, uh, you know, I think this is interesting, even in the new Testament where it tells us, uh, to serve our employers, our authorities, and this is the kind of mentality make them successful. Because you're making yourself successful in the end. Now, drop down to verse 10. So he's telling him all this. And then he says, For thus says the Lord, when 70 years have been completed for Babylon, I will visit you and fulfill my good word to you and bring you back to this place. Wow. And there's more. Of this Now at times in these chapters he will revert back to his anger and wrath but at the same time he is just so gracious. Well uh, by the way what makes what makes this so interesting is in Daniel chapter 9 verse 2, Daniel remembered that Jeremiah prophesied only 70 years. And it says, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, observed in the books the number of the years which was revealed as the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet for the completion of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. So it just fits together. And then at the end of the 70 years, Cyrus, the king of Persia, will Defeat Babylon, the writing on the wall, and he will send them back. Now, quickly, that, that's kind of a, a, uh, a near future prophecy. Still in the future, but it's near. And then you're reading in chapter 30. Look at chapter 30, Jeremiah 30, verse 1. And it says, the word which came to Jeremiah from the Lord saying, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, write all the words which I have spoken to you in a book. So in this book, he's writing these prophecies. And then if you would go down to verse seven, he says, alas, for that day is great. He talked about a sound of terror. He talked about this. He said that day is great; there is none like it, and it is the time of Jacob's distress, or the King James were familiar with Jacob's trouble, which is none other than the tribulation. And by the way, people get so uh, so confused on the tribulation. That tribulation, seven-year tribulation, really. It's the tribulation of of the Jewish people. God is still not done with them. It's the, the tribulation of the Jewish people. It says, now watch this, and it is the time of Jacob's distress, the tribulation, look how far in the future, but he will be saved from it. He's gonna save them from the tribulation. Now, I suppose they could try to give it a different translation or interpretation, but We have the New Testament, which fills in a lot of the gaps, and we know that that's coming in the tribulation. It says in verse 8, It shall come about on that day, declares the Lord of hosts, that I will break his yoke from off their neck and will tear off their bonds, and strangers will no longer make make them slaves. But they shall serve the Lord their God and David their king, whom I will raise up for them. Who's that? The Lord Jesus Christ. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, declares the Lord, and do not be dismayed, O Israel, for behold, I will save you from afar and your offspring from the land of their captivity, and Jacob will return and will be quiet and at ease and no one will make him afraid. Look at verse 11. For I am with you. God is with them in exile declares the Lord to save you. For I will destroy completely all the nations where I have scattered you. Only I will not destroy you completely, but I will chasten you you justly and will by no means leave you unpunished. So we see that. Now, let's move to chapter 31. So it's still the same time frame. Chapter 31, uh, turn to verse 27, Jeremiah 31, and uh, those who were here during the time we went through Jeremiah, these are bringing back fond memories, Jeremiah 31, 27 through 30, behold. Days are coming. Here we go. It's a prophecy. It's for the future. We're just not sure when, but let's look at the context. Maybe we'll figure it out. Declares the Lord, when I will sow the house of Israel and the house of Judah with the seed of man and with the seed of beasts. First of all, those two houses are going to be together. It won't be a divided kingdom. Second of all, men will prosper. Beasts will prosper. As I have watched watched over them to pluck up, to break down, to overthrow, to destroy, and bring disaster, so I will watch over them to build and to plant, declares the Lord. In those days, they will not say again, the fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. Or in other words, it's because of the sins of our our forefathers that we are going through all of these things. He said, they're not going to say that. But everyone will die for his own iniquity. Each man who eats the sour grapes, his teeth will be set on edge. And then we come to these famous verses of the new covenant. So I believe the prior verses were talking about the millennium. And this is surely going to be the millennium. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. And he's referring to the Mosaic covenant, which is a works-based covenant. My covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. And on their heart, I will write it. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. They will not teach again, each man his neighbor, and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord. In other words, evangelize. Come on, come know the Lord. For they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity, and their sin I will remember no more wow. So they are in captivity. The second deportation. There's a third coming. But he gives all of these gracious promises. Because they are his people, he will not forsake them. Because you and I are his people through Christ, he will not forsake us. We see that Israel is going to be delivered in the tribulation. This is one of the reasons why we don't believe we're going to be going through the tribulation. If the tribulation were for the Gentiles, then maybe the Gentiles would go through. But we're not. It's going to be for Israel. It's Jacob's trouble. And then what's going to end the tribulation is going to be the second coming of Christ. He's going to defeat the enemies. He's not defeating our enemies. He's defeating his enemies and Israel's enemies. It's, it's going to be glorious. And what will he do then? He will usher them into the millennial kingdom, the thousand-year reign where Christ will literally sit on the throne of David. And by the way, he will do that forever. But this there will be a thousand years. And we believe it to be literal because it's it's repeated like six times in, in Revelation. And most of the time we see that these numbers are used and um, uh, repeated. Most of the time it's it's a literal number, even though we may have to figure the number out. But I think it's pretty easy to figure out what that one is. What is interesting about that is he is telling them they will experience what you and I are experiencing right now as believers. In Sunday school, we're studying the Holy Spirit. And the moment that we trusted Christ as our Savior, we were not only forgiven, like it says here, not only given eternal life, but the Holy Spirit indwells us. No doubt, He's the motor of the whole thing, and I hope it's okay that I said that about him. It. It's an analogy. He's the one that runs everything. He's the one that empowers everything. He's the one that gives us understanding tonight to understand this text and to get excited about it. He's the one who uh, prompts us when we're out in the world to share something with Jesus Christ, to talk to our neighbor and say, know the Lord. He's the one who writes his law on our heart. And so this is happening to us. So even though this is meant for them, we too, by the blood of Christ, he says that His the new covenant in his blood, we say that every month when we do the Lord's table, we have been called into really that covenant. But the whole fulfillment of this covenant is not going to be fulfilled until the millennial kingdom. To which he just told these bad Israelites, I'm I'm taking you there. You're going. You're my people. And it won't be like the covenant of Moses. If Deuteronomy 28, if you do this, you will be blessed. If you don't do this, you will be cursed. And oh, by the way, one of the curses is I will take you out of the land that I gave you and I will take you into captivity and all the treasures of that land will go to that nation. It's not going to be like that anymore. It's going to be a covenant based on the Lord and his work alone. His work alone. It's a one-sided covenant. And so the Lord is going to bring that into fruition. So uh, again, really exciting tonight that all of these passages are coming together and, and all of these neat things. Uh, we still have more to cover. Uh, next week, we'll talk about Jeconiah, Kaniah, or Jehoachin, whichever you like. But we'll talk about him because there is a curse that is involved in that. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this evening. Thank you for the wisdom of your word. Thank you for your sovereignty that puts it all together, and your word has written all about it. And tonight, Lord, we see how sovereign you are, but we also see how gracious you are. We deserve hell, but by the blood of Jesus Christ, we are saved. And We have your law written on our hearts. We love your word. It gives us the truth for what we should believe and how we should behave. Oh God, we thank you for your wonderful plan. Uh, We just pray all these things in Jesus' name, amen.